And now, it's time for Lawyers for Jesus Radio, lighting our path through law. A show about faith in the law and in the marketplace. Featuring the partners from the law firm Mauk and Baker. Located in downtown Chicago, Mauk and Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Good afternoon. Welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. And today we'll be discussing the state of religious liberty with one of the leading conservative voices in the nation. So stay tuned. I'm Noel Sterrett. I'm an attorney at Malkin Baker. We're in Chicago. We're Christian attorneys. We aim to serve the Lord and our neighbor in many different areas. We do everything from zoning to estate planning, adoption to civil liberties litigation. Uh, We are also allied attorneys with Alliance Defending Freedom. So if you want to find out more about our law firm, go online, uh, check us out, maukbaker.com, M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call us, 312-726-1243. Today, our guest is David French, a writer for the National Review, constitutional lawyer par excellence, New York Times bestselling author, and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. David, are you there? I am here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a blessing to have you on. Um, I can't tell you, I've looked at your materials that you've written on how to uh, sue and win and defend the freedom of speech on college campuses uh, many times in my litigation. Um, I've also just admired your work from afar, uh, your writing with National Review, uh, just how your family conducts itself. Um, I know your wife, uh, Nancy, has written a great book with Bob Fu, uh, Double Agent. I would encourage everybody to read it. It's a story about Bob Fu, who is a uh, Christian freedom fighter in China, and um, just the importance of religious liberty, his testimony. It's an incredible book. It's probably my favorite book uh, that I've read in the last year or so. Um, You've served this country, your family, and the Lord in so many different capacities. Uh, Before we get into the questions, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for, for your service and just um, just the model you are to so many people. Uh, well, you're way too kind, but I appreciate that very much. Well, I just appreciate you taking the time. And uh, let's kind of get right into where I want to focus our time, which is the state of religious liberty in America. Uh, this is supposed to be a shining city on the hill, and we have so many wonderful constitutional freedoms but I'm uh, disheartened because we've got uh, an administration currently and uh, possibly three, uh, at least two candidates for uh, the presidency that uh, don't seem to value religious liberty. And so talk to us now about what is what do you view as the state of religious liberty in America? Uh, I would say uh, religious liberty is on the ropes. Uh, it's not extinct. Uh, we certainly enjoy a lot more liberty here than even is enjoyed, say, in, in Western Europe. But it is on the legal and cultural defensive. Okay. Uh, the momentum is on the side for the moment of those who would seek to suppress religious liberty. I mean, look, when even the libertarian candidate for president, who's Gary Johnson, and, and I said, again, libertarian, mm-hmm. uh, calls religious liberty a black hole and comes out in favor of sweeping anti-discrimination laws that infringe not only on the right of religious freedom, but also rights of free speech and on property rights, sure. uh, you know that there is, a, uh, there is a real cultural and legal shift in this country. Not irreversible, um, but certainly this is not, uh, the, the momentum is on the other side. Yeah, and I think that's important because, uh, you know, in, in our work, in, in many respects, the lawyers are, 
kind of the uh, the stopgap. We're we're the dam. We're we're downstream from culture. So law follows culture. And so, just talk to me about your work as a lawyer and why you transitioned into you know being a writer. Yeah, well, I spent uh, many years as a constitutional lawyer, uh, representing mainly uh, Christian and conservative students on college campuses and high schools and middle schools uh, around the country. I, I I like to say, and I think I think this is still correct. It was correct as of a little recently, but I think I'm the uh, I've sued more universities than any living lawyer. <laughs> so uh, I've been fighting political correctness. I've been trying to defend uh, the religious liberty of students and professors for a, a very long time, more than 20 years, actually. My, my, first, my first case on behalf of students, I was a student intern in, in law school. So that was uh, all the way back in 1992. Uh, so I've been doing that for a, a long time. And uh, at the same time, I like to say I've been a lawyer with a writer's hobby, with a writing hobby. Uh, I've been writing for National Review since 2006. Uh, started to write more and more as time went on. And you know, uh, by by last year, I realized I felt like I was going to have a greater impact um, in the culture, uh, a greater impact on law and policy by writing rather than litigating. And so, I switched from being a lawyer with a writing hobby with a, to being a writer with a lawyer hobby, and uh, I have not looked back. This is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Noel Stared of the law firm Malcolm Baker. We're speaking with David French of the National Review. I think that's a, a, a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, putting it, and in many respects, I think uh, your writing for National Review has uh, done a great service to um, a, a broader community. Because I, I you, you know as well as I do that a lot of these cases that we litigate against local universities, municipalities, they're trying to shut down a church or a mosque or other groups. A lot of these don't get uh, a lot of notoriety, um, and they're not, you know, widely panned. But, you know, when when we're writing for uh, broad publications, you may just get roped into a presidential candidacy um, or (laughs) find find another (laughs) way. Almost, almost. And I can't tell you, uh, you know, I almost shed a tear. I mean, I've been, (laughs) frankly, so just uh, in such despair with our candidacy candidates that we have that I was I was truly hoping that uh, though ma- not many people know you though and more should uh, I was really hoping that we'd ha- I would have some principled choice that I could uh, vote in for in November well you know uh, that's the only reason I considered it and for those who you know are listening who don't rem- don't recall this I was uh, briefly recruited to run for president as an independent against both Hillary and Donald Trump and you know, I'm not somebody with high name recognition, to say the least, uh, but the only reason I considered it is because we had such bleak choices, and the fact that we have such bleak choices has only been reamplified over the last week or so as we've actually seen the shameful spectacle of uh, the GOP nominee actually attacking a Gold Star family. It's completely okay to disagree with uh, someone who's lost a child in the war on terror on policy and politics. Uh, but to attack them personally uh, is way beyond the pale, and that's what Donald Trump has done. And, and Hillary Clinton, of course, had, uh, has multiple people who have accused her of lying directly to the faces of the Benghazi families, uh, claiming that uh, a video was responsible for the deaths of uh, their sons when we know it was a pre-planned, premeditated terror attack. And so she was using deceitful political talking points, even in the most private of moments, to families. And so you look at them and you say, you know, I, I summed it up on Twitter that if there is a depressing argument that sums up what 2016 is, it's the argument over whether it's worse to personally insult Gold Star families 
or lie to their faces. <laughs> and, oh man! And uh, it's it's just a it's a sad, very sad state of affairs. But you know, look, we're we're in this for the long game. God is sovereign. Uh, the fate of the nation does not hinge on the 2016 election. Uh, the fate of the church does not hinge on the 2016 election. Both are firmly in in the Lord's hands. And uh, you know, one of the things that we have to be, take great care in is that we don't ruin our voice, uh, we don't ruin our witness, uh, we don't ruin our own moral credibility mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of one single election, that we have to maintain uh, that witness to the culture um, past November of 2016. And I fear that too many people are looking at 2016 as the be-all, end-all, and that uh, they're going to sacrifice a lot of their credibility by arguing on behalf of one of those two unacceptable candidates and unfit candidates uh, for very short-term political reasons, uh, when uh, you know the, the truly important thing is is uh, far more than any given political outcome, is the preserving the church's moral witness, preserving Christians' moral witness, and uh, um, influencing culture. Yeah, and I think the other thing is not only are we talking about biblical principles at stake, we're also talking about constitutional principles, which uh, you know th- that's just. Religious liberty is just as true and important to the Muslims in America. Speaking of the family of the Gold Star, um, you know, the lost there. Um, but one of the things that I'm struggling with in the church is it seems like there's there's a desire to protect our own religious liberty to the extent that it protects churches. But in terms of the Muslims and other religious groups in America, um, not so much, not, not so much concerned. And so speak to that a little bit, because I think uh, the constitutional principles for me are very much, you know, are as important, perhaps not as important as the biblical ones, but critical. Well, I believe in a constitutional corollary to the golden rule, which is I would like, I will defend in others the rights that I would like to exercise myself. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, the, the notion that religious liberty applies only to Christians is fundamentally a historical and unconstitutional, uh, but you know what? We have, a, um, we have increasingly in this country a winner-take-all mindset that is affecting both parties, um, thoroughly affecting both parties, that the most important thing is winning, and when you win to the victor goes the spoils. And that means that the victor gets to do what the victor wants to do. I mean, this is something we've seen with the Obama administration for the last two terms. Uh, he has gone around the democratic process. He has been you know, he's actually been um, defeated at the Supreme Court more than any president because he's gone around the democratic process so completely and thoroughly, um, has viewed that he has a mandate to impose his will on the voters. And unfortunately, uh, both the GOP and the Democratic candidate have that same man- mindset that uh, their uh, victory for either one of them, they will view as a, as a mandate to impose their will, not to govern in a constitutional manner. And so, um, it is credi- critically important for Christians in general, Christian lawyers in particular, to um, defend the actual law of the land, which is the Constitution of the United States. Our, our laws are not embodied in a person. Right. Our laws are embodied in a document. And the people who run our government um, promise to preserve, protect, and defend that document, the Constitution. Yeah, uh, but we are moving towards sort of this banana republic mentality that says that we are now ruled by people rather than laws. All right, coming up, we'll talk more with David French about the long game. Where do we go from here? Biblical principles, constitutional principles, the state of religious liberty. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Noel Stair of Malkin Baker. We're speaking with David French of the National Review. Tune in every Saturday at three o'clock for Lawyers for Jesus Radio.
Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Noel Sterrett, partner of the law firm Malkin Baker in Chicago. We're talking with David French, one-time potential presidential candidate. We're also discussing uh, the state of religious liberty in America. And uh, you've written an article recently for the National Review in which you made the case that evangelical Americans really don't do much by way of fighting for what uh, the fundamental liberties that really make the you know, uh, speaking of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, uh, you know, possible on our college campuses, in our schools, in different spheres. And so let's talk there. Let's pick up there about the need for evangelicals, just Christians, followers of Jesus of all different sorts, to be more involved in the public square and more out there being advocates for freedom and, and rights of conscience and the, and, and the things like that. Well, yeah, let, let's just begin with a basic question. So, which community does more uh, and engages in greater a level of activism and energy in uh, advancing their point of view in the culture? Is it evangelical America or is it secular progressive America? Uh, which community is more likely to litigate to vindicate its rights? Which community is more likely to engage in sit-ins? Which community is in civil disobedience? Which community is more likely to engage in the regulatory process? Uh, which community is more likely to uh, engage in politics? I mean, you go down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, one would be forgiven sure. uh, if you thought that evangelicals didn't really care about religious liberty all that much. Um, yes, uh, they they do tend to write enough checks to keep some uh, pretty good uh, religious liberty law firms in business, <laughs> like the Alliance Defending Freedom and and others. Uh, they, you know, they will donate to, to uh, allow teams of litigators to defend Christians in cases around the country. But as far as actually mobilizing to vote, um, actually mobilizing to uh, defend their values in the political sphere, actually mobilizing, heaven forbid, for civil disobedience, for protest, right. nope, just don't do it. Um, you know, we, we have situations where, for example, um, you know, in, in some parts of the country, you will have small business owners subject to personal financial ruin because they won't participate in same-sex weddings. And there is, there is uh, you know, maybe some money given to help their legal defense funds, but where are the Christians clogging the uh, Capitol building with protests? Why, where are the Christians marching on the state capitals? It's just not happening. Um, and, and, you know, look, I mean, people... You you see where people's passions are by where they put their energy. And yeah, so why, uh, do, why do you think, think that is? So yeah, why do you think that is? Why do you? Well, think- there's a couple of things. Um, I think number one, uh, the the church is still outside of the subculture that follows politics closely. Is still pretty darn ignorant of uh, what's happening in politics, what's happening to our religious liberties. Number two, um, evangelicals have this pathological desire to be liked, and they will often believe that if somebody is engaged, has a legal problem, it's because it's their own fault, um, that that they have not been winsome enough, that they have not been kind enough, that, you know, what's really remarkable is um, when when I see Christian college students have problems on campus, again and again, other Christians on campus won't help them because these other Christians arrogantly believe that if they had been involved in the situation, it never would have come to litigation because they figured out how to engage the culture. Right. Um, you know, there's something that makes me just, <laughs> it's one of the most irritating things I, I can experience, I ever experienced in the church is, 
you know, you'll have various uh, pastors and leaders purport, purport to tell evangelicals that they've figured out how to engage the culture. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, it, it goes, for the way I've uh, phrased it, because we see it all over the place too, not only on campus when we're defending a Christian student or somebody like that, but in the zoning context, we represent a lot of churches that, uh, you know, smaller, you know, an African-American Pentecostal church that's moving in, and when they get just discriminated against, denied their zoning. They can't even start their church. I'll send a letter out to all the pastors in the community. I say, hey, can you can you stand up? You know, give your voice, lend your support. And more often than not, it's crickets. I don't even get any response back. And so, the religious liberty on the local level, just nobody's standing for it because, like you said, you know, they think, well, maybe if this wouldn't have happened to me, uh, or the pastor deserved it somehow. Um, and the way I put it is they remain sanctimoniously apolitical. You know, it's, yeah. they take the high horse because they think, well, politics is dirty. It's below me. And if you're if you're in it, then you're below us. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that really sets the stage for what we're seeing now, which is the people that realize that they're going to advance their cause with whatever tools, be it a political a law, be it a, a, a political office. They're going to advance their cause, their agenda, their purposes in in whatever you know opportunities they have, and yet we say, uh, you know, we've got our pious uh, our tools, which which are prayer, and I don't want to make light of that. But there's so much that we have in terms of the arts, in terms of writing, in terms of how we parent, how we teach, uh, that really can affect culture. And a lot of these tools we're just leaving on the table. Oh, completely. I mean, I was at a conference recently where some of these uh, small business owners have been threatened with ruinous fines, closing of their business uh, because they won't participate in same-sex weddings or because they won't uh, dispense abortifacients that kill children. Uh, The question was asked, what are your churches doing for you? And the answer was, well, basically some people say they'll pray for us. Well, you know, and I can't help but know, not just think, but know that if these were progressive business owners, Yes. who are facing um, closure of their businesses or ruinous fines that would destroy their personal finances because they were standing up to religious conservatives that their progressive community wouldn't just offer their good wishes. Their progressive community would be in the streets for them. Their progressive community would be shutting down traffic at the Capitol, um, protesting. And in, you know, in evangelicals instead sort of you know, pat people on the back and say, well, I'll pray for you, and you know maybe they might write a fifty dollar check to a law firm, to a, you know a public interest law firm. And I'm sorry, the day where that works is over. The day where that's enough is over. That day has come and gone. So you got a choice. Um, you can continue to be the nicest person in the room, and uh, the the one who merely offers prayers and good wishes mm-hmm. to those who are brave enough to fight, or you can continue to have religious liberty in this country. There's, it's, it's going to be a binary choice. You can be passive um, and lose your liberty, or you can be active and have a chance to keep it. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, we're just getting to that position. That's why I say we're on the defensive now. It's not that we don't have millions of people who theoretically could mobilize. Uh, it's we have millions of people who have not mobilized, who prefer to engage and be passionate about different things. Sometimes things are quite unimportant by comparison. Sure. And and in that case, if our religious liberty does go away, we really have no one to blame but ourselves. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, we even have a segment, a large segment of, um, I guess, what they would dub the evangelical right that has said, well, you know, we're not, we're not so much opposed to statism as long as it's our, our president. You know, as long as it's our, as long as it's our guy, as long uh, you, as we're in charge, yeah. um, right? I mean, you know, look, liberty is liberty, um, and the fact in in any time that you you essentially erode liberty uh, because of a belief that you know you're going to be in charge and it'll be all right because you're going to lead in a proper way, uh, it, it, that's incredibly short sighted, and yeah. you know that's a that's a leftist progressive view. Um, and it's it's a view that, if, for example, if Donald Trump is elected, we'll come back and bite them. Yep, and you've seen it, and you've seen it on the college campuses because I, I when I speak to student groups, you know, I get uh, protesters who will show up and they say, "Well, look, we need to vest the administration with the power to uh, regulate offensive or hate speech." And and I'll quickly tell them. I said, "Look, the powers that you're going to quickly give this liberal administration that you're serving under now." You know, these are the same powers that your groups were fighting against in, you know, the 70s and earlier. And as soon as this left administration leaves, what's to say that the powers you've now vested them with won't be turned back to suppress your speech? Well, you're already seeing it. I yes. mean, what happened in, in last fall and spring in, in the 2015-2016 school year was pretty remarkable, where left students were censoring and toss uh, left student groups and left uh, professors were advocating the censorship and termination of other leftist administrators. <laughs> so it was a left on left purge. And one of the things that, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty far fetched, at least any time in the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years that leftist administrators will face censorship from conservatives on campus. Cause that's how small of a minority conservatives are. But what's far more credible is that they will be eaten by their own, uh, mm-hmm. that they turn on each other. And we've seen that happen again and again over the course of the last academic year. And so, you know, when they eliminate liberty, what ends up happening is they get, they get taken down very, very quickly and often in the most painful way possible by their own ostensible allies rather than by their cultural enemies. And so when you eliminate liberty, you'll often find that it's not the case, that you keep winning over your foe, uh, what often ends up being is the case is that friends turn on each other because the, the will to power uh, is present in the human heart, even amongst friends and, uh, alleged friends and allies. Yeah, so I think, liberty protects us all. It protects us from each other. Yeah, and we all lose when liberty loses, and I think that's such an important message. Uh, David, where can people follow you? Uh, very easy, nationalreview.com. Uh, you, you'll see my writing there daily, and you can follow me on Twitter at David A. French. And he's probably the best Twitter follow that I've had. Uh, he's up there in the top ten, I, I would say, in terms of my <laughs> Twitter follows. <laughs> You're way too nice. Well, you, you don't know the other ones. So, <laughs> All right, if you have a legal need, uh, this is the Lawyers for Jesus Radio. Law firm Malkin Baker in Chicago. Let us know if we can help you, if we can serve you. Uh, You've got to serve somebody, and uh, we choose to serve the Lord and our neighbors. Thank you so much, David, for coming on. Thank you for your service to this country, and uh, thank you for the work of your family, uh, Nancy, and, and your kids, and all that they've given up for this fight. Well, thank you. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. 